Good afternoon, everybody. Stress is everywhere. You may have it at the office or at home. You might even have a grandkid or a kid who just doesn't want to go off to school because they're so anxious about it. But stress can actually be a good thing, right? Unless it's contributing to anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll be talking about that and differentiating between stress and anxiety in your life up on the Matt Townsend Show. Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. The Federal Reserve policymakers are moving forward with efforts to stimulate the economy, but gains in some areas could mean setbacks in others. The Federal Reserve is pledging to spend $40 billion a month to buy mortgage bonds and is extending its promise to keep short-term interest rates low. Chairman Ben Bernanke says sluggish economic growth means the job market hasn't improved fast enough. We look back at the last six months or so, we've seen unemployment basically the same place it was in January. We've seen not enough jobs growth to bring down the unemployment rate. Bernanke acknowledges criticism that savings rates will remain miserly, but he says addressing the broader economy is more important so that savers and everyone else can eventually benefit down the road. Mark Hamrick, Washington. Yesterday, both President Barack Obama and his opponent Mitt Romney were focused on foreign policy. Today, however, both of them are back to the economy. The president tells the Colorado rally Romney likes tax cuts for the rich so much he's got one for every occasion. Tax cuts when we're at peace. Tax cuts when we're at war. You need to make a restaurant a reservation. You don't need the new iPhone. Here's a tax cut for that. But stumping in Virginia, Romney said Obama's economic plans are no laughing matter. How in the world he can go before a Democrat convention and speak to the nation and offer nothing but more of the same is beyond me. Polls give Obama the edge on foreign policy, but the economy's a soft spot Romney hopes to exploit. Mark Smith at the White House. A new measure has easily passed in the House that would punish people who claimed military honors without actually receiving them. And this time it should stick. The Supreme Court struck down an earlier version of the measure, saying it infringed on free speech. So lawmakers came up with a revamped version that Congressman Joe Heck says adheres to the Constitution, but also protects the Medal of Honor and other awards from fraud. The objective of the law is to target and punish those who misrepresent their alleged service with the intent of profiting personally or financially. Senate action on the measure isn't likely until later this year. Jerry Bodlander, Capitol Hill. An unsurprising New York City Health Board decision has made the proposed ban on sugary drinks over 16 ounces a reality. Health Commissioner Thomas Farley called the question. All in favor of approving the proposal? Which was not surprisingly approved as Mayor Michael Bloomberg appoints all the members of the Board of Health and the proposal to limit sugary soda sizes started in City Hall. And reducing the amount of sugary drinks that we consume is the simplest diet change that we can make to help lose weight or to maintain a healthy weight. In six months, restaurants, theaters, ballparks and food carts will be banned from selling sugary sodas larger than 16 ounces. Bloomberg insists the move will soon be accepted as restrictions on smoking and the ban on trans. Fats. Warren Levinson, New York. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Matt Townsend, your relationship coach, your guide on the side. 
We do what we can on our show to help you and your loved ones grow healthier, happier lives, healthier, happier relationships. And today, oh, have we got a topic for you. We're talking stress. You ever felt it? You ever felt a little anxiety? And today we're actually going to get into the difference between anxiety and what's just regular stress. What stresses you out? Does uh, the idea of somebody at the last minute saying, hey, I want you to go on the radio stress you out? Because (laughs) um, I just, at the last second, a few minutes ago, just told all of my team, I want them all on the radio with me in the first block because we're talking about what stresses them out. So... Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. My team, my team of peeps, minus one, I think the most stressful one, by the way, the one that stresses the most. Uh, guys, here's your question for you. Life is easy. Okay, we'll go through. We've got Catherine and Sky and uh, um, uh, Bryce. <laughs> I was going to say Bruce Springsteen <laughs> um, and Bryce. And we've got Robert out in the hall, but he'll be coming in a minute. Here's the question, boys and girls. What stresses you the most? Because we're going to today, we're bringing on an expert. He's going to tell us the difference between stress, what's normal, and what is like anxiety, a disorder, or obsessive compulsive. Okay? So, who wants to go first? Who has got something that stresses them? I'll go first. You go, Sky. Um, I think the thing that stresses me the most is girls. Ooh, girls. Seems like if, uh, if I have something going with a girl, then, like, anything else that causes me stress, whether it's homework or school, yeah, like, those don't stress me out near as much. That seems to kind of go away. Well, it's because girls tend to medicate you. Yeah, they help out a lot, so. Is that true, Catherine? <laughs> you stress uh, about guys, Catherine? Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, interesting. So is that, do you think, that's not anxiety. That's probably just butterflies. Maybe. I don't know. Butterflies and unicorns. Butterflies and unicorns. Um, that is stressful though, because you don't want to blow it. Right. And then, and then like all the problems, like if things aren't going well with that girl, that yeah. stresses me out even more. Oh yeah. And so, and then that's like all that I can think about and concentrate on. So like when I'm trying to do school, like uh-huh. all I think about is how it's not working out with this girl. And then it just stresses me out even more because then I fall what? back in school. And... Stop it. You're stressing me out. <laughs> Sky, now that's Sky. Sky's looking for a girl. Uh, 801-422-0143. Uh, we're looking for a girl. Okay, what stresses you out, Catherine? Um, driving to new places with or without directions. Really? Yeah. Like in other cities? In other cities. So places I've never been before. But not like the Arby's in downtown. Probably. No, that, that I can usually handle. You can, that doesn't stress you. No. But if you were thrown into another city... Like, say, Chicago. Oh, I love Chicago. And you but had I didn't to, have to drive in if Chicago. If you had to go drive to an unknown place, that would stress you out. Yeah, that would totally Without directions. Yeah. Even with directions sometimes because it's constantly like, okay, is Maps Quest really right? Is yeah. Google what Maps if it's wrong? telling me what's right? Yeah. Exactly. But usually I don't trust it's not her too sometimes. bad without time pressure. So if it's, there's no pressure of time, then you're good. But... To some degree. <laughs> would, you, would you ever get up in the middle of the night while you, on your first night you arrive in a town, you get up freaked out because you don't know where you're supposed to be tomorrow? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're going to get into this. We're going to ask the good, our, good, our good psychologist about this. Is this an obsession? Is this a little OCD coming in? Is this anxiety? Or is this just pretty normal average stress? Bryce, you're up. BT. So this I, is not a rant, though. Not yet. Uh, at our retreat that we had the other week. Yes. Matt, you got to see me perform with the BYU Broadcasting the BYU band. band. What you didn't see and what happens every time before I perform a show like that, yes. I I start to uh, breathe heavily and I start to get the shakes Do you really? all over. Did you have a lot of sugar? 
No, I actually didn't eat at all. Sugarless shakes. Because you can't throw up if you, or I guess throw ups aren't not that bad if you don't have a lot of food in you. That is interesting. So here you are, a bass player, the stud, by the way, you rocked it and you were the youngest guy in the room, but you were rocking it and you got a little nervous, a little stage fright. Just, just right before. That's probably normal. About five seconds before the show. Okay. I hit hit that Zen spot. Did you? After you threw up? After, not yet. Um... Interesting. But, but see, that's probably normal stress. That's probably, don't you think? I don't know. It's awful. I think it, well, I thought it was weird when you were crying <laughs> in the fetal position under your, under your chair. That was weird for me. That seemed like you, that's where you pushed it over. Not my best moment. No, not for any of us, Bryce. Uh, okay, Rob, you're up, brother. What stresses you out? It's talking about the driving in another city yes. stressful. Yeah, I'll tell you what's stressful. Having to drive in the same city day after day, Does the that same stoplights, the same roads, the same. And you start to almost feel trapped in the city. You, you got to get out. You got to go somewhere new. <laughs> How about what about stri- what about driving through the same drive-through, and then being no. stuck beside behind long, the, behind the same lady? Long drive-throughs. At some drive-throughs, you can't get out of. Does that stress one you? One lane once, and you're like, you know what? This food's taking too long. Maybe I should go somewhere else. But you can't because you're stuck behind the minivan that ordered 17 cheeseburgers. And you go, no! Oh, my now. word. See, that, okay. So we're talking anxiety, obsessive, compulsive, or just regular stress. There's a difference. In fact, if you listen to all these stories, though, it sounds like the effects are the same. Are they? What do you think? Are the, is, is it all the same? No matter what we're feeling, or do you think the disorder of anxiety or dep- or uh, obsessive compulsive, or I guess even depression or some of the other disorders, if those might be even worse? Well, we're going to be talking to one of our experts about this, uh, Colton Miller, who is a psychologist that uh, right now works up at Brigham Young University, Idaho, and with all these kids coming back to school, he's getting a lot of cases of anxiety and stress. And he's going to help us sort through all of it. Um, it's really, uh, it's really interesting. I, I love to hear the stories of our team here because when you think about it, um, who's not, who hasn't been worried about girls at some point driving in another city? I mean, you don't want to get off on the wrong turn, or you could end up dead in some cities, um, or you could just end up in the drive-through that Rob's talking about. That's so darn scary um, with the lady that's got seventeen kids to feed, and why is she only feeding them hamburgers? I have no idea. But that's another show. Um, We're talking about it. Anxiety versus stress. What is the difference? How do we separate those two? How do we decide uh, what's healthy, what's not, what's an average or normal amount of stress, and where are we really starting to to pull ourselves down? We'll be back right uh, after this break on The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. Some people join a gym to flex their muscles, and some are joining to exercise their brains. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Several years ago, scientists discovered that the human brain has the ability to form new neural connections as a result of mental exercises. Flexing your mental muscles seems to improve memory, reasoning skills, and alertness. The question facing neuroscientists is whether or not brain flexing to improve mental fitness helps to reduce the onset of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. According to the marketplace and a growing number of aging Americans, the potential benefits are worth the cost of a gym membership for the mind. So how do you find a gym to exercise your brain? 
Baby boomers are turning to brain flexing centers, joining brain gyms online, or using a variety of brain fitness software. Advocates say brain training can be targeted to specific results by stimulating neural activity in the areas of the brain you want to affect, like helping to improve memory, alertness, response speed, mental sharpness, and the ability to focus. The scientific jury is still out on just how effective these mental workouts are, but if you had trouble finding your car keys this morning, you might want to put your thinking cap on and give the old noggin a good workout. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. For regular updates on BYU radio programming, sports, and other behind-the-scenes news, follow BYU Radio on Twitter. Just search for BYU Radio, hit follow, and enjoy our tweets on news, live updates on shows, and much more. Talk about good. You feel on the pressure. Billy Joel. Pressure. Oh, it's just crushing you, isn't it? We're talking about stress today on the show, folks, and we're trying to differentiate between what's just normal stress or pressure, which we all feel, and what or when do we start to enter into another stage of stress and pressure, which might be more clinical Uh, where we might be able to be diagnosed with anxiety. We're going to be talking about anxiety. We're going to be talking a little bit about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. We also want to, and we're going to be bringing on an expert to uh, to talk to us about that and how to differentiate some things that we should and could be doing about it. We also um, want to make sure, though, that, you know, we're not therapists here. This is a radio show. Um, We are going to be talking to a therapist. But if you feel like you're getting and needing some of this help, Listen up, because this is the chance that we can uh, maybe help you to to go get some help and and to relieve some of that stress and pressure for you. Remember, that is part of the goal of the show is to make sure we help you be healthy as well, not just trying to entertain you or keep you busy while you're driving. So, you know, sometimes there's a lot that goes on inside our heads, and it's never fun to deal with those annoying words that we call stress. Stress is no fun. I don't need to tell you that. It's that overwhelming, headachey, draggy feeling. And it's a bit ironic because right at the moment when life's complexities require us to be on our A game, stress drops in, gives you even more symptoms, making it difficult to handle the job that was stressing you out in the first place. And there are legitimate reasons to feel stressed. Applying for a mortgage, house renovation, marriage, divorce, family illness, legal trouble, pregnancy, surgery, even little daily things like shopping, waiting for red lights, car trouble, and fixing dinner. They're all real, tangible events and circumstances that are happening to you at that very moment, and the mind gives you stress for good reason. Our ancestors, when they would see a lion running to eat them, it was that same chemical process inside their mind that helped them think quickly to be able to solve the problem and not get munched. And thank heavens for that, otherwise you or I might not be here. But there's a dark side to stress, too. A time when all those emotions kick in, but really not for any clear and present danger. For example, a mom leaving her teenager at home for just a few minutes, and two miles down the road she hears sirens heading the other way. Dads 
might be uh, thinking the worst when their daughter's 15 minutes late coming home from their date. Sirens and tardiness are not legitimate sources of stress, but they might make you feel stressed, kind of like a smoke alarm going off. Sometimes there's a fire, but usually not. And sometimes our mental smoke alarm gets tripped a little too easily. Give you an example. You're in a work meeting, you look down at your phone, see you missed three phone calls, and you have three voicemails, all two minutes apart. And a part of your mind starts to tense up and think, somebody died. Car crash, probably. And some frantic family member is in tears right now trying to call and tell you. The work meeting you're sitting in suddenly muffles and goes into the background, and you can't focus on anything to the point where you have to excuse yourself and go return the call. You calmly try to dial... And your hand might even shake a little tiny bit. And you call to find out it was just your son. He's trying to make the DVD player work. That's an example of a smoke alarm going off too easily. Doctors call that anxiety. And if the smoke alarm goes off too easily and a bit too often, they might call it anxiety disorder. The good news is it's fairly common and there's a lot of ways to treat it. So at what point do you need outside help? It never hurts to bring in an expert. Excellent job, Robert. And we are going to be bringing in our expert, Dr. Colton Miller. Now, Colton Miller is a PH, has a Ph.D. from Brigham Young University in counseling psychology. He's worked in a various uh, amount or different locations like state hospitals, juvenile corrections, community mental health. Currently, he is a psychologist at Brigham Young University, Idaho. And we're bringing on Dr. Miller um, to just basically get his insight. As somebody that sees a lot of people, talks to a lot of people, can give us a lot of great advice. Dr. Miller, are you there with us? I am. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. It's so good to have you back. And uh, one of the things we just want to make clear that is Dr. Miller sharing his ideas, he's not um, here representing BYU-Idaho, right? These are just your opinions, your views as a counselor. That's good. Now, uh, seriously, Colton, this it's a big deal because I think we're, we're supposed to feel stress, right? Every one of us has stress. It's a normal function of our lives. And so I guess at what point does it no longer – is it no longer just part of our normal existence? And at what point does it start to move into a form of disorder or you know, mental health issue? Uh, great question. Uh, in fact, if people said they never felt stress, then I'd be worried about it. That's another disorder, um, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so stress is, is normal and it's healthy. And like you mentioned earlier in your show, um, it dates back to the caveman stuff, fight versus flight. Um, and stress is kind of more of a, I would say it's more short term. It's kind of a feeling of concern, a little worry, a little pressure. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes stress is more related to a specific event. Like I heard uh, earlier somebody talking about they have to, I don't know, get up in front of people. Yeah, like that's... get on the radio and do a show. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now where it crosses the line into more of an anxiety disorder is anxiety is typically um, – more related to an intense fear of something. Hmm. Uh, 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 and and it's, it's more excessive and it's more chronic. And anxiety disorders interfere with everyday life to an extreme. They, they interfere with our just our everyday functioning. And so like with most things in mental health, um, stress is kind of the normal and then the extremes um, lead into more of the disorders. Now, as you so as you see anxiety as a counselor on a, at a university campus, what how does how does that intense fear 
appear to those students? Like, what are they afraid of? Um, it could be a lot of different things. Um, so, for example, I could be stressed, you know, using the college age example about a test that's coming up, an exam that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll feel pressure. I'll worry about it. You know, I'll try to study. But an anxiety disorder, not only will they feel that, it's intensified to the point where they may not even be able to enter the testing center to even take that test. Oh, interesting. Or they may not be able to sit down and, and study because they're so worried and fearful about what could possibly happen and what, what is or could go wrong. That's interesting. Okay, so it really is. It's, um, it's, it's, just, it's, it's the average anxiety to a point that it debilitates you. Exactly. Most most disorders have to be have to interfere with your everyday functioning to a hmm. point where it, it feels like you're losing control and, and need some extra help with that. And then, I mean, because we just throw like, oh, yeah, he's so stressed. But there are people and I see it just day to day in my own like coaching practice with couples and things where where they, they their mom had anxiety, their grandparents had anxiety. They're manifesting some form of an anxiety disorder. And and they don't deal with it. But this anxiety impacts more than even just the person. It impacts everyone around them in a way. Oh, exactly. I mean, if and I think most of us probably know somebody that we could identify who seems like a very anxious person. And they can come across as, you know, they're kind of frustrating at right. times because they'll ask a lot of questions. They worry about things that probably don't need to be worried about so much. And they just take everything to the extreme where it can interfere with planning, even leaving the house, you know, things like that. So you're right. Being in a relationship sometimes with somebody who has high anxiety levels, that can, you know, kind of reflect on your relationship and and kind of transfer over to yourself as well. Right. And a lot of times we look at them like we don't even we we know they're extreme, but we don't necessarily even classify them as clinical because I guess that's not our job. That's everyone else. That's your job. But we we then I guess part of the problem might be thinking someone's um, normal when it comes to anxiety when they're actually manifesting, you know, a disorder. The, the minute yeah. you think they're normal, then you just oh, you're such a stress case. You start calling <laughs> names. You start doing all these other things that just seem to not help. Yeah, and and most people aren't trained or even looking for that. They just kind of. You know, they might inter- interact with that person once a day or once every week and just think, man, that guy's a stress case. Yeah. But in reality, if you were to talk to that person, you might find that there's something legitimate going on that, you know, not, is not necessarily in their, con- that, that's in their control, that they might need a little extra help with that. There's probably an anxiety disorder of some sort. Oh, interesting. And it's, isn't it true that most of the time they know their fears irrational, but they just kind of don't, I mean, they don't know what to do about it. I would say, well, it depends on the anxiety disorder. I think certain anxiety disorders, yeah, they can certainly recognize that what I'm worrying about is probably not going to happen. Yeah, like a but lightning there are anxiety storm. disorders where that's kind of the nature of anxiety. For some reason, they're not able to think very rationally at times. Mm. They're always assuming the worst possible outcome, uh, things like that. What are some of the anxiety disorders or like, because I know there's there's just, um, there's like a social disorder, right? So, I mean, they, people can have anxiety about specific things, too. Do they break them into categories like that? They do. Um, in our diagnostic manual, there's, oh, I don't know, seven or eight different anxiety disorders that have been identified. Probably the, more, the most popular one is what we call generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. And, and that's more of a severe and a chronic kind of, you just worry all the time about everything. Hmm. You're really tense. It interferes probably with your sleeping, your concentration, and you can't turn it off. I mean, it's just kind of always omnipresent. It's just always there. 
There's panic disorder where people experience panic attacks. There's post-traumatic stress disorder. We've yeah, we hear a lot about that, that lately, don't we? Mm-hmm. And then there's that social anxiety disorder, which has to deal with more uh, social situations. The one that I work a lot with is the obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, you know, I think a lot of people know about it. Yeah, but talk they about were... that for a minute, because what is, I mean, yeah, that that is the people that turn on on and off lights, you know, a thousand times a day. I guess that's the extreme version of OCD. Sure. Of obsessive. Um, OCD, um, mo- most people's perception of OCD comes from the TV show Monk. <laughs> or the movie as good as it gets, yeah, and and that's fine. But you know that's Hollywood's version, and Monk is a quirky quirky character, right? But OCD um, is an anxiety disorder. It's classified as that, but it's also it's it's actually been shown to be a neurological disorder. So it's it's nothing um, that is caused by the person who's experiencing. I mean, it was it was most likely there since they were born. And oftentimes it is ignited or sparked by a traumatic event. So it's, it's a physiological issue. It's the brain has a, has a tendency or some kind of real tangible problem. Exactly. I mean, we, people have done MRIs and all that kind of stuff on, on individuals who have OCD in their brain. And, and we were able to show that their brain fires differently. It functions differently than a brain who does not have OCD. Oh, interesting. And so it is, it is certainly a neurological disorder. So what, what happens is, and I'll try to put this pretty basic, yeah. um, is OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh, the obsessive part, obsessions are thoughts, images, or impulses that come to one's mind that are very disturbing and cause a lot of anxiety and fear. Hmm. And they're repetitive, meaning these thoughts, don't, you can't dismiss them. They just kind of sit there in a person's brain and they loop over oh. and over. And, and is the looping again. because of the physiology? Yeah. They I mean, just it keep, something... It's almost like they have the same pathway or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of like an old record player that just keeps going around in a mm. circle, you know. And it, and it just loops. And what that happens, and oftentimes these, these obsessive thoughts that they have are pretty disturbing. And I'll give you some examples in a minute. Yeah. But they just sit and loop. And you can imagine if you're having a bizarre, a scary thought that's just going over and over in your head, that will cause your anxiety levels to increase. And so Ugh. what they learn to do to reduce their anxiety levels is they start um, adapting by doing compulsions, and that's the compulsive part. Okay. And compulsions are often behavioral responses to the obsessions. Okay. And so we hear a lot about those. The most common one is hand washing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you hear about the repeating, the checking, the light switching. Those right. are all behavioral compulsions that they do in order to temporarily release their anxiety. I guess that helps the get them out of the loop. Exactly. For a second. Exactly. The problem with that is we've shown that er- that when individuals do compulsions, that actually only reinforces their obsessions, okay. and it strengthens and it strengthens the OCD. And 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 the other the difficult part about this is uh, compulsions can they're not always observable. They can be mental compulsions, such right. as repeating a prayer over and over in your head, singing a song, saying Amen seven times, uh, thinking a good thought to undo a bad thought. So there's lots of different types of obsessions and compulsions. See, you know what's interesting about it, Colton, is – and we're, we'll take a break and come back. And I'd love to hear some some ideas, some solutions. Like where do we go if we've got some of these uh, tendencies that we see with anxiety or obsessive-compulsive disorder? Where should we go? It's It really is – it's um, to just have these issues and to just chalk it up to these people being weird or these people being anxious or just stress cases – 
we're we're really missing it. These people are suffering, aren't they? Oh, uh, my my professional interest is treating OCD. I have many people who are very close to me who struggle with this disorder, and it is it is a self hell. It oh, is a real torture. I bet. Because let me give you a quick example. Maybe you got to go to break, but I, I was working with an individual. And he was attending another university in the South, uh-huh. and he had OCD. He didn't know he had it. And that's the other problem is a lot of people don't really recognize what's going on. They themselves think they're crazy or right. uh, going insane, things like that. But anyway, his obsessions were around a violent nature. So he would interact with people, and then he'd have this image of him doing something violent to them. Hmm. He never would, but that's what his brain would say. Right. Um, anyway, so he was in a meeting with an academic advisor, and she was noticing something, and she kept pushing him and pushing him to tell her what was going on. And he decided, okay, I'm going to tell her. And he explained to her, you know, I'm having these violent thoughts about you. Oy. Unfortunately, she was not trained. Yeah. She immediately called the police. He was escorted and booted from the university, all because we don't recognize We him. don't know what know to do. He would never act out on it. He would never do anything like that. But because he didn't know what was going on and neither did she, it had a great impact on his life, which is really sad and unfortunate. Oh, it is. And uh, it's such a hidden, quiet thing. So when we come back, we're going to keep talking with Dr. Colton Miller, Ph.D. in counseling psychology, who's giving us just the tools, the insight to understand better anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. When we come back, we'll get kind of a little diagnostic. He can take us through and uh, do what we can to see if we can't get you some tools and some help on this one. Thanks for listening, folks. Stick with us through the break. We'll be back after this on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Keep up to date with BYU Radio's programming by liking BYU Radio on Facebook. You can check our page for BYU sports updates and information on our entertainment programming. Like us on Facebook at BYU Radio. Talk about good. Good afternoon. I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Protests against U.S. outposts in Middle Eastern countries continued today. The latest riot against the, the latest riot against the U.S. came in Yemen. Security forces kept violent protesters out of the U.S. embassy in Cairo. Police and demonstrators clashed for the third straight day outside the U.S. embassy. This time, police kept protesters out. Egypt's President Mohamed Morsi denounced the violence and pledged to stop attacks on embassies. Morsi's in a unique position. He's an Islamist from the Muslim Brotherhood. He also denounced the anti-Islamic movie that apparently set off the wave of protests. I'm Mark Levy. Reacting to the attack yesterday in Libya and the continued protests, President Barack Obama is vowing that U.S. diplomats will be protected. Campaigning in Colorado, the president vowed to track down those behind the Benghazi attack that killed Ambassador Chris Stevens and three others, adding no act of terror will go unpunished. It will not dim the light of the values that we proudly present to the rest of the world. 
No act of violence shakes the resolve of the United States of America. Separately, in a Telemundo interview, he said if Egypt doesn't properly protect the Cairo embassy, that would be a real big problem. Obama says the new Egyptian government's still finding its way, and while it's not an enemy, right now it's not an ally. Mark Smith at the White House. Democrats in the House are criticizing the Speaker's pessimistic outlook on solving the latest financial crisis. The administration is set to announce what programs would be impacted come the new year if an agreement cannot be reached to avoid the impending domestic and defense spending cuts that'll come to more than $100 billion. Speaker John Boehner earlier this week said he is not confident such a deal can be reached. A statement top House Democrat Nancy Pelosi says is unfortunate. This is so immature, so irresponsible. Analysts warn the economy could fall back into recession if lawmakers cannot find a way to avoid the automatic cuts. Jerry Bodlander, Capitol Hill. The largest outbreak of whooping cough in decades is spreading rapidly across the nation. And now researchers have found that children's chances of getting the disease are highest just after finishing their shots. That's the sound of whooping cough provided by the CDC, which says the U.S. is on track for the most cases of pertussis in more than 50 years. A study by researchers at the Kaiser Permanente Vaccine Study Center may explain why. Lead author Dr. Nicola Klein says it found protection from pertussis rapidly declines after the final dose of vaccine. Within the five years after the fifth dose, which is given when they're about four to six years of age, the vaccine wanes at just over 40% each year. But she says some protection is better than no protection, so parents should continue to vaccinate their kids according to the current recommendations. I'm David Melendi. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. You feeling it? Under pressure. Queen, good stuff. What can you say? Um, It really is. uh, Life is just a boy. It's so scary. It's if you just read the headlines long enough. If you listen to our leaders talk, it makes you wonder how we're all going to survive. We've brought on Dr. Colton Miller, Ph.D. in counseling psychology. Uh, who is a full-blown psychologist working currently up at BYU-Idaho and working with all of the students up there to kind of just make it through life. He's also worked in state hospitals, juvenile corrections. I think you've touched it all, Dr. Miller, haven't you? I've kind of been around the block, I guess. You've been around the block in your young years. Uh, (laughs) Now, before we left for the break, we were talking about kind of anxiety and um, as a disorder, not just the and kind of differentiated it between just feeling stress, which is when we have intense fear, you know, so intense that it starts to to maybe keep us from doing things. Um, and then we also talked about obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so in in your business, in your life, I guess it's real. You're seeing a lot of this almost every day. It's very true. Particularly with the population I work with, it's a pretty traumatic sometimes and stressful time in their lives. A lot of changes going on. So, mm. yep, and it, it seems almost every day. It seems like too that when the, when all of this is going on, whether it's anxiety or OCD or I guess any kind of mental health issue, it, it also it's got to impede you from um, 
from your per- your mission, your purpose, and succeeding. And so, in a weird way, it almost seems like simultaneously it would also depress you. <laughs> Does it? Do you see a lot of depression that falls into the realm when you get into anxiety and OCD? Yeah, we would call that more of a co- comorbid thing where you struggle with both anxiety and depression. Okay. And we see that a lot. I mean, if you're constantly worrying about things all the time, that's going to wear on somebody mm-hmm. to the point where they might turn a little bit more apathetic, be down on themselves. So certainly we see those things interact with each other quite a bit. They kind of dance together. A Do little they? Bit. Where does performance yeah. anxiety come in? Like, um, I, I know a guy that's the best athlete in the world, best artist in the world, best musician, does everything the best, but he'll never do it twice. So if he wins a state championship, he's not going to play again next year. Go out on top, right? He does. And part of it is just because, like, to have to live up to himself again, not going to do it. Yeah. Is that just uh, like – is that like a performance anxiety? Is that – but it seems I like it might that's... be keeping him from progressing. It possibly could, yeah. Performance anxiety is when you have a specific task that you need to do in front of an audience. And often we see that in the entertainment business or in athletics, things like that. And actually, performance anxiety can be pretty adaptive for people Hmm. if they're able to understand it and kind of harness it and use it to their advantage. Um, Anxiety at more of a a smaller scale is, is helpful because it heightens our awareness. It it helps with our concentration. The problem is if we're not... We're not able to find that balance, and it kind of runs its toll and takes over. Then it can be more debilitating. It's fascinating because it seems like you would also end up being, if you are somebody that's anxious, you might even be more empathic of others because oh, you, yeah. you've gone so inwardly with your feelings that you've maybe learned to go into others' feelings. That's powerful. Yeah, I certainly find that with a lot of my clients I work with. Those who, and I think all of us struggle with something. Yeah. Um, and certainly if we struggle with something, we understand that we've actually looked into it and tried to work on it, then we're more empathetic to others who might struggle with similar things. When do we need to really look at it and say, okay, course correction, we have to, we have to start adapting or changing or we have to start getting help? How do we know yeah. when it's time? I would say that if you're noticing, for example, we'll use anxiety. Um, everybody worries, but if your worrying significantly disturbs your job, your social life, your everyday activities, if your worrying feels more uncontrollable, um, it's extremely upsetting to you, you worry a lot of the time, and it's fairly consistent, like over maybe over six months, mm-hmm. um, then that's a pretty good indication that you're not just a stress, you're, not, you're just not stressed, that you're probably struggling with a, a, a disorder. And so then you may want to go in and get checked and um, by a professional. Now, that seems like the hard part, too, is uh, how do you find it? Because, again, it, to me, it seems like therapy, therapy seems like an art form. I mean, I know there's a lot of science in it, but it still seems like it's your heart. It, it, some people just can read others and some can't. And some have the right degrees and even some have the right degrees, but they still can't get you. It seems so no, personal. You're... You're exactly right, and I, I love that you said that therapy is kind of an art form because it is. I mean, I, I'll work with, I don't know, five or six, seven different people in a day, mm-hmm. and four of those seven can all have generalized anxiety disorder, but they each experience it a little bit different. And we all come in with our own experiences and our own specific worries, and so that's the part of my job is to kind of adapt to each person that comes into my office yeah. to try to meet yeah. their needs and their style. And the reality is, is uh, 
is that there is not one therapist that fits all people. Um, I have a lot of people I, I like to think that I work well with and that enjoy me and that we can, you know, see some progress and then others who our personalities just don't mix and that's okay because it's not my job to save everybody in the world. So well, and I guess too, when you're, when, I'll go ahead. As you seem to say, certainly if you're, you're looking for a therapist and then you have every right to find a good fit. And in mm-hmm. fact, research shows that the most important factor of benefiting from therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the client. And so you want to have a good, decent relationship that can you know, and, facilitate progress. And you're in charge. I mean, this you're hiring this therapist. And that might be part of the problem is they might have too much anxiety saying, oh, I don't relate. I mean, I've actually had people say, I don't know how to fire my therapist. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there thinking, well, you're paying $120 an hour. You better learn how to do that. By the way, next yeah. time you're in with your therapist, ask them how to fire them. Because exactly. it's, uh, it really is. I kind of like the idea that um, as you're talking about how it's such a personal manifestation, how, how, the, how the disorder or the issue manifests. It, I guess it's um, we really only need the words generalized anxiety disorder for – uh, really just for the therapy world, I mean, it seems like it might be more I have, for example, I have a friend who has a coping mechanism that when he's he 's learned that he has gads generalized anxiety disorder, and every time he recognizes that he 's starting to feel anxious, he actually just says to himself gad zooks which <laughs> which means okay it 's just generalized anxiety, get over it it 's an idea it 's a kind he 's learned some coping skills. To sure. to move around it, um, but for him, the, he's actually using the word in a funny way, and I, I guess sometimes it's so it's so individual that I'm wondering if I was told I had obsessive compulsive disorder, in a way, I guess that would scare me. Instead of just saying, you know what, you tend to obsess on these issues. I don't know. It seems like it needs to be personalized to me. No, and I think you're exactly right. And and what you're talking about is kind of the label of a diagnosis. Labeling, yeah. And, and the power that comes from that. Yeah. And so I personally, I'm very careful about which client I say, yeah, this is exactly what we're dealing with, and it has a name, and these are the symptoms, and you meet that criteria. Mm-hmm. While others, you know, we'll go, you know, six months meeting together, and I'll never tell them once what I think my working diagnosis is. Oh, that's great. So you're that's, right. We have to kind yeah. of adapt that. And I then, and then it's theirs, people, right? Yeah, exactly. I would say for a lot of people, particularly people who struggle with OCD, they need to be educated about what's right. going on because a lot of them come in not knowing, just believing I'm crazy, I'm going insane, I'm having these bizarre things going on. Yeah. And it's I, actually relieving for them to find out, how oh, my God. Yeah, well, and, and especially a name that's, that's better than schizophrenic, you know what I mean? Or a name that's softer, that's not as – I mean some of those labels that could be thrown around are scary. And so as they're doing their little WebMD search for what they have. Um, it yeah. might be comforting to have finally be told that you just have an obsessive compulsive disorder. Yep, and very much so. I've I've had many clients in our first session after you know we've kind of gone through the diagnosis and everything in tears, just relieved that it wasn't something more more chronic and more serious like you know schizophrenia or something like right. that. Right? Is there um, there's hope? Is what I'm hearing too in your voice? Yeah, I mean that's if there wasn't, I don't think I'd be in this profession. Yeah, you um, may as well be a dentist. <laughs> there's no hope concrete. there just keep yeah. drilling but yeah, it's... I, I think i think there is a lot of help we've, we've made a lot of progress in the last i'd say even 10 20 years with mental illness and understanding it and having good research and science behind it and and how to treat it i mean we're big time as a profession as as mental health professionals 
into looking into really substantial research about what is effective and what is not effective. And, and so, yeah, I, there is a lot of hope, particularly with anxiety disorders and OCD. And to be honest, that's one reason that I really love working with individuals who struggle with OCD because we can see results. It's one of the, I'd say, one of the few mental disorders where we can see results in a matter of four to ten weeks pretty quickly. Wow. But, and, and, and for that's somebody great. that's been caught in that torture, that has got to be, that has got to be such a blessing to know that they're free or that they can yeah. get free or that there's at least a light by a door and you can start working your way over there. Yeah, hope is a, is a big thing in therapy no matter what disorder, what they're dealing with. And, you know, if the therapist has hope, that's one thing. But if you're able to give your client a little bit of hope and foster that, that really helps the process along as well. Love that. What are some basic um, – what are just some basic anxiety tips? What are some things that people can do? Uh, they they got to get to a therapist. So they're starting to see or, you know, go go have it evaluated. Um, if they're starting to see that it's impacting their life over a long period of time. What what are some other just things that help kind of on a high level that help to, to manage emotion or your anxiety, manage some of your compulsions? Yeah, there, there is not, you know, there's not a cure-all, but no. certainly there are things people can do to help alleviate some of their symptoms. Um, visiting with a therapist can be expensive, uh, hopefully insurance companies, and I think they are coming around to help pay for that a little bit. Great. So that'd be my first suggestion. Secondly is medication. Um, many people are afraid of medication, and I completely understand and respect that. But once again, we've made significant advances with medication, and they've been shown to be helpful for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. The best combination is is therapy and meds, but I realize that's not a you know that's not an option for a lot of people. So what can you do on your own? Um, I think educating yourself is really important. Uh, the internet's right there. Within a few clicks, you can find a ton of great information about a, uh, you know about your disorder or what you might be dealing with. Learning with anxiety, learning relaxation skills, uh, breathing, meditating, things like that have been found to be really helpful. And the really basic needs of getting in a good sleep cycle, trying to eat as healthy as you can. And I would say one thing that I really push with a lot of my clients is leisure. Good grief. We have so much on our plate. (laughs) We're so programmed. Yeah. It's okay to go fly fishing every now and then. It's okay, you know, whether it's shopping or whatever it might be, something taking time for yourself to relax that you actually enjoy. And not doing it because you have to check it off your list, but doing it because... You would like to do that. That is the isn't the root word of recreation is to recreate, and if yeah. we're not making time to recreate, most of us. Every time I've ever gone to recreate, I end up being stressed out of my head and tired and frustrated with everyone in my family. So yeah. I usually I doesn't end up healing me. So space, some time, some. I mean, part of this is um, it's just kind of good common sense, good kind of common healthy habits, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, there's a reason that in the medical profession, you always hear us reiterating exercise, eat healthy, mm-hmm. try to get in a regular sleep cycle and leisure. I mean, it's we're not just saying that to be yeah. annoying and boring. You just Those don't know things, anything else, you boring people. <laughs> they're, they're, they're legitimately, they help. So Right. I think it's great. And, and I love, I mean, there is hope. And what I think is so great about what you're doing up there, Dr. Miller, is the idea that... Um, as, as I think of experts like you who now have some of the latest research and many years under your belt, we're, we're getting better and better and better at, at knowing what the real problems are. I mean forever. Can you imagine 50 years ago trying to even differentiate some of these things? 
And, oh, no. yeah. and now you have so much data and brain studies and years and years of longitudinal studies that that we're going off of. So it's never been a better time to live with a mental health issue, really. And, and I think we're only getting better. I mean, yeah. it's, it's funny. You talk to a lot of people in just the mainstream and you hear it on the news that people are freaking out. It's the end of the world. Things have never been worse. Well, actually, there's a lot of positives to what's going on right now. Um, and in a lot of different areas. And so it's kind of that idea of glass half empty, glass half full. And I choose that the glass is half full and only going to continue to fill up with advances in research research and science. And you're exactly right. Mental health in the past has been a very difficult subject and topic, and I feel like we're getting better at it and we're getting the word out and the stigma is is certainly decreasing. Good stuff. Last word, Dr. Miller. What – what advice would you give just to kind of wrap it up? Where should they, you know, what's your challenge? What's the number one thing that they sh- that anyone dealing with anxiety, o- obsessive compulsive disorder, or anyone that's living with somebody that's dealing with that, what should they be doing? They should be seeking out to educate themselves and to get professional help if they need it. Um, I guess I guess more generally is the first piece is kind of that acceptance piece. Mm-hmm. Realizing that it's okay that you're human. And along with our humanness comes, you know, faults and deficits. Yeah. And if we can recognize that and we're willing to say, you know what, I'm human, it's okay for me to go ask somebody or to get some help, I think that's the first step that people need to do. Got it. Nailed it. Dr. Colton Miller, uh, Ph.D. Uh, in counseling psychology. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, we're, it's we're, always a pleasure. We're going to have you on every, every two to three months no matter what, even if you don't want to be. <laughs> we're going to have you on. Appreciate you, brother. And uh, for those listening, take take that advice. I mean, it's just it's one decision that can make such a big uh, change in your life and in your relationships and and in your self esteem, your sense of worth. Every one of us has a whole. We all have problems. Uh, If yours is a little anxiety or OCD, hey, let's get on it. Right. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back after this break right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. A robotic arm teaches paralyzed human arms to work again. Next. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Researchers at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, working with two Illinois universities, are using a robot arm to retrain stroke patients into using their own limbs again. The problem they are solving is one of redefining how the brain coordinates the arm's movements with what it sees. In stroke patients, the arm tends not to sense its speed and position as well as before the stroke, leading to lots of near misses and spilled or dropped cups of coffee. The Rehab Institute team uses virtual reality displays of a target and a special robotic arm built by Barrett Technology of Cambridge, Massachusetts. The unique robot arm, trademarked as the WAM, which stands for Whole Arm Manipulator, is capable of learning how to reach for the target in only a few steps. Then, a patient attaches it to their hand and tries to grab the same target, but the robot arm deliberately pushes the human hand off target with precise amounts of force. In learning to overcome the resistance of the robot and hit the target, the system rapidly and permanently retrains the neuromuscular connections, leading to smooth, coordinated movements. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. 
Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. What song changed my life? There are a lot of songs that have changed my life. It's a totally brutal question to try and answer. Every musician has that one song that changed their life. Join Tony Award winner Leia Salonga, American Idol finalist Brooke White, and more of your favorite artists as they explore their lives before and after they heard that one song that changed everything. Watch The Song That Changed My Life, Monday nights at 7.30 on BYU-TV. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have been talking about anxiety, um, stress, kind of differentiating the two, a little bit about obsessive-compulsive disorder, basically mental health issues that impact our lives and our relationships. And uh, we just finished talking to Dr. Miller up at uh, up in Idaho, um, who is an expert in um, psychology and Really been giving us some tools, some ideas. Reach out, get some help. We also probably need to watch out for the fact that because everybody has watched all of these shows, because people have watched Dr. Phil and listened to Dr. Lara, a lot of people might uh, be taking the role of diagnosing everyone else. You see, they say, look before you leap. But when it comes to overdiagnosing, it's less about you and more about everyone else. Look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But I'm about to rant. This is The Bryce is Right. I'm pretty sure this isn't an isolated incident, but many of the professors in the 100-level psychology courses will tell their little students something important. You are just college kids. You are not psychologists. Because for some reason, there's always a few students who seem to think that they have the equivalent of a bachelor's, master's, PhD, and postdoctorate degrees, as well as a license to practice after their first week. They're not even close. And I think this highlights a problem that I've noticed. Ever since Freud's ideas became mainstream, people who might have only ever had a light brush with the subject of psychology are convinced that they've got it all figured out. Because of this, I see a big problem with what I like to call overdiagnosing. But first, I'd like to point something out. Psychology is a very new field, and the more we learn, the more we're able to distinguish and diagnose. Think about it this way. Before we figured out that germs exist, there were like 12 names for sicknesses, and once you got sick, nobody really cared to figure out much about it because you were going to be dead in a few days anyway. After we learned a little bit more about how this world works, we now have lots of names for symptoms and conditions we initially used to just write off. I don't think this is all there is to it, but much like biology, we have a lot more knowledge of psychology to work with now than we did. Even with that in mind, the extreme levels of diagnosing seems a bit strange. Less than 50 years ago, people with similar symptoms to the kids today who get quick, severe diagnoses all the time, these people were just considered odd or weird. Many of them adapted and turned out just fine without any major interference from anyone or anything. How can I be so sure? Well, when it comes to mental health counseling, therapy, and medication, there is an ignorance stigma surrounding this type of treatment among older generations. The ignorance stems from the fact that nobody knew anything about it because experience with psychologists was so limited. And as consistent as ever, when people don't know about something, they assume it's got to be something awful. But the poster child for overdiagnosing is good old ADHD. Here's my take on it. My generation sits in a strange place. If there are major differences between us and the younger kids, most of us older kids seem to have trouble seeing it. Because somehow all of the kids younger than us seem to have fallen victim to the ADHD pandemic that magically skipped over most of the people over the age of 15 a few years back. It's hard for me to believe that it's this widespread or this 
severe quite so suddenly. But at the same time, I know that ADHD is very real. An old roommate of mine had it. And if he missed his meds, things would get out of hand pretty fast. And also from my studies, I know that his was just a mild case. So what am I really doing? I'm echoing what the Psych 101 professors here do. Unless you have your license, be careful what you say and do. Amateur diagnoses can have real effects on people beyond any sort of treatment, whether they need it or not. And as far as we're concerned, it's not worth the risk to make someone think they have some awful mental illness. Let's leave that diagnosis to the pros. All right, I'm out. And remember, don't forget to be awesome. Bryce Tobin, ranting about mental health issues. Uh, Good stuff. It really is. I mean, are we not here to help everybody? Um, Are we not here to, to try to better understand what's going on with everybody? And instead, we just start throwing out labels and names. And I'm not sure in the end if throwing out a name or a label really is what matters most. I think what maybe matters most is that we care about the people. If they know truly in our hearts that they are important to us, um, we're probably going to have a higher likelihood of getting them the help they need. So if you have people in your life struggling with some mental health issues, or if you are somebody that's struggling, you know what? Just remember you're normal. I mean, normal in this world is broken, right? We're all a little broken and we all have something wrong with us. And I just cannot, just the other day I had a client come in who's been struggling basically drove, uh, got in the car with her ex-husband and their baby, uh, left her other baby and her new husband, didn't even think about it, got in the car and went and got a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. Just forgot that she was married and had a husband and a whole new family. And as we were talking, I'm sitting there thinking, how can you just kind of forget? I go, is it that you want this other guy? And she's like, oh, no, I never would want the guy. Well, how could you forget? And as we talked about it more and more and more, it basically what eventually came up is she has historically um, had um, ADD and had been on medicine for like three or four years and was no longer on the medicine. And then when you go look up um, some of the behaviors she's been manifesting in her relationship, a lot of them just sounded like ADD. Um, So we sent her to a counselor and She's having that looked at. If you know you have a problem, if you've already been diagnosed with something, if your mom, your grandma, and your great-great-grandma all had it, guess what? You might want to look into it. I know you might be afraid of the meds, so don't go the med route, but at least go get some help. Get a therapist involved. Get the help you need so that we can all get happier and healthier together. Remember that the word healthy doesn't mean perfect. It just means whole. And each one of us have something that we need to be healing, whether it's our psychological health, our physiological, our emotional, our spiritual. We all are here to heal, and I believe we're all here to help each other. So keep listening to the Matt Townsend Show. Do not give up. Uh, We are here for you every Monday through Friday, 5 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 o'clock. Again, it's replayed. Join us then. If not, just join us uh, whenever you can and uh, share this with your family. Thanks for listening, everybody, and join us next time right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU.